Hey guys, you're listening to the PhD Podcast, a show where I interview PhD students and discuss their project. In doing so, I hope to give students a chance to talk about their work and a chance to introduce the public to some new groundbreaking research. I'm your host, Mwidia Sukunika, or call me Mo. Let's roll. Hey guys, um, welcome to the second episode of the PhD Podcast. I'm your host again, Mo, and today I have Gabby from La Trobe University as well. How you going, Gabby? Pretty good. Thanks, Mo. Yeah, um, so Gabby is a PhD student at La Trobe, and she came from the master's route instead of the honours route. So um, Gabby, um, can you explain to us in two minutes about your project? Sure. So I'm basically working with this type of proteins that are known as autotransporter proteins, and they basically help bacteria invade and develop a disease within a host, which in this case would be a human body. Uh, What we're trying to do is understand how these proteins behave, how they interact with themselves, and then we're trying to find ways to block that. Considering the fact that bacteria have developed resistance against basically all antibiotics, we're trying to find ways to tackle this resistance and stop this from happening. Okay, cool. Can you tell us a bit about antibiotic resistance? Uh, I'll try to use very simple words, yep. but there's, bacteria have the ability to get DNA from the environment where they are, mm-hmm. and some bacteria, after they are exposed for too long to an certain antibiotic, can incorporate a resistance against this particular antibiotic on the genome. When some bacteria die and they release their DNA to the environment, other bacteria can get this DNA and then incorporate the resistance sorry, into their genome as well. And that's how basically they become resistant. So it's kind of like if a weaker bacteria dies, the strong bacteria will eat it essentially and steal its best traits to make itself better. At least the parts that are good for it. Yeah. And in a way it's been our fault because overuse of antibiotics is basically what is causing all this resistance from. Yeah, so that's been like the last 50 years essentially of overuse of antibiotics <laughs> has led to these superbugs that we are currently having to deal with now. Yeah. Um, so what's the bacteria that you're currently looking at? So I'm currently working with Escherichia coli, which yep. is basically the basic model of bacteria that many researchers use. Yeah. Um, working with Europathogenic Escherichia coli, so it's mainly found in the urinary tract. So currently in your PhD, you're working on these proteins that you believe play a role in helping the bacteria um, survive antibiotic use currently. So kind of what is some of the different methods people and researchers have used to try and fight against antibiotic resistance? There's actually many different ways. I know that people do fragment-based design, where they basically work with very small molecules that just try to block the essential part of... Uh, bacteria that are interacting with other bacteria to develop resistance. I know that there's a research group that is currently working with um, polymers, I think, and the University of Melbourne, and I think they have already started um, testing it because it's actually working quite well. Okay. In my case, uh, for one of the proteins that I'm working with, I'm using shark antibodies to try and block this resistance from happening. So it's quite interesting all these different alternatives that people are trying to use in order to tackle this resistance. Yeah, that's true because currently in our lab we're looking at the use of metals in organisms. So we look at whether some bacteria require certain metals. Researchers have seen that different bacteria react to different metals. So that's also another way of fighting against this antibiotic resistance we currently have. Yeah, and it gives a lot of information on the nature of bacteria as well. So it, exactly. it also gets for other things. Yeah, that's resistance. true. So you mentioned shark antibodies. So what are shark antibodies? So, well, 
I should probably explain a little bit what an antibody is. Yep. Uh, so antibodies are part of the immune system of many organisms, humans included. And antibodies basically help get rid of all threatening molecules that could potentially get into our system and that could potentially affect our health. It was really interesting because uh, I reckon many researchers were not fully aware or didn't really believe that sharks could have uh, an, an immune system. And when it was discovered, it's actually quite complex. Uh, yep. That was uh, really interesting. The shark antibody that I'm working with is called the Ignar. And it's pretty similar to one of our antibodies, which is known as the um, IgG or antibody type G or immunoglobulin type G. Yep. And that is why I think it's been pretty used lately. It was discovered in 1995, so it's fairly recent. Uh, it's quite convenient because the variable region of this shark antibody, which is known as the BINAR, it's the one that recognizes all these threatening molecules or antigens, as we commonly call them. Yeah. And uh, the BINAR has the ability to recognize massive amount of antigens. They are pH resistant, so you can put them in very different conditions and they will remain the same. And they are also temperature stable, so you can work with them at really low temperatures or really high temperatures and they will um, keep their structure. So yeah, that's, that's why people, I think, are getting more and more excited to work with shark antibodies. So who was the crazy man that decided, hmm, there's a big shark? How did shark animals get discovered, really? I'm pretty sure it was in the USA. I'm pretty sure it was a researcher known as Flashnik. Okay. I'm not really sure how yeah. to pronounce his name, I'm sorry. It's all good. Uh, but yeah, I think at the same time, I think camel antibodies were becoming quite... Uh, camel antibodies? Camel, camel antibodies. Oh, okay. So right now, single domain antibodies like shark antibodies and camel antibodies are becoming quite popular. And I think it was sort of like the boom of all these single domain antibodies. I'm not fully aware of how it happened, like when someone said, oh, let's look at a shark or, or how exactly yeah. it happened. But the thing is that they found it, they discovered it. They actually called it NAR for new antigen receptor. Okay. Uh, so that's how your VNAR name comes from then, variable NAR. NAR, and then, yes, yeah. basically, so new antigen receptor. Yeah, they started working with it. Um, there's not many research groups it's not as abundant yep. once this one started becoming bigger then others started working with shark antibodies as well so i actually started working with them when i was in mexico okay. i lived in northern mexico for a few months doing my bachelor thesis and that's when i started working with shark antibodies and there's other groups uh, around the world working with them i think there's one in uh, the uk yep. uh, we've got one here as a trope uh, associate professor mick foley that one in the USA, the one in North Mexico. So yeah, it's 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 in a good way. It's good that there's not many because most of them know each other, okay. and it's good to share information. Yeah. And all. So how how do you actually acquire shark antibodies? Do you have to like catch the shark and then blend all blend all up, or do you like cut a bit of it and then like purify it? Like how do you actually collect the shark antibodies and use them? Yes. So. Um, there's different ways. When I was in Mexico, for example, yep. uh, we were working... So when I say shark, uh, we usually use small sharks because many people get really excited and think that I'm talking about the great white or something like that. You spend like, <laughs> you spend like 10 hours trying to catch this big great white. Yeah, they always ask me like, so do you struggle with the shark? Do you fight with it? No. <laughs> so in North Mexico, we used to work with a type of shark that is known as the horn shark. Yep. It's 
not too big and it's not dangerous at all and uh, not that sharks are dangerous but they're scary <laughs> <laughs> they're, not, they're not as scared. That's I'm assuming this shark is not as scary as the big great white shark, at least. Probably. Yeah. But I don't think great whites are scary. But have you seen Jaws? I've seen Jaws. <laughs> no, nobody should see that movie. <laughs> that's terrible. Anyway. Anyway. Yep. Let's move on. What we did over there is that we went, uh, or they went, yep. the, the research group, to a certain part of, of northern Mexico, and they caught a few sharks, three, four sharks maybe. And then they brought them back, it, back into the lab and they kept them in tanks. And they fed them and they kept immunizing the spleen. So basically what they did is that they forced the spleen to produce as many as antibodies as it could. But it eventually reached a point when they had to kill the sharks to take out the spleen and then get all these antibodies that they had been producing. It was not too bad though because the population of these sharks was growing too much in that area. So in a way it was a way to sort of try to control the populations and doing research at the same time with them. What they did here in, in Australia, at least, and Cyril, is that they borrowed a shark from the aquarium and they took some samples of, from, from the blood of the shark and that's how they got the antibodies. So from the blood, they started developing a, a, an antibody library. So it's like plasma purification. Basically. Yep. And that's what they're working with still. Okay. That was pretty good. And the sharks survived, obviously. And the sharks survived and no sharks were harmed. That's well good to hear. <laughs> so what shark did they use here in Australia then? Uh, they or... used a wobbybone shark. Okay. Is that also kind of a small shark as well? Or... It's not as small as a horn shark, but yep. fairly small as well. Okay. People have worked with uh, slightly bigger sharks, like the Norse shark as yep. well. Uh, but I reckon it would be really hard to work with something bigger, like a hammerhead yep. or... Whale shark. Great white shark. <laughs> yeah, even though they all have um, these antibodies. You mentioned camel antibodies as well. Would there be much of a difference between how you would acquire a camel antibody compared to a shark <laughs> antibody? Because obviously one evolves water and the other one evolves desert. Yeah. I really hope I can just take it from the blood because immunizing a spleen from a camel <laughs> would be much more interesting. <laughs> much more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but there's many camels in Australia. So That's true. That's probably, very true. I guess it's probably as well from... Love. Yep. It's the easiest way to do it now. Okay, awesome. Now a different tact. So you did mention that you did your bachelor's from Mexico, and I did say that you're a master's student. You are actually born in Mexico, so you came to Australia three years ago? Three years ago, three years ago. yes. What did you actually first do in Mexico at university? Um, so I studied, I'm a biologist. Yep. I did a bachelor in biology, that's how it's called over there, at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. I've always been very interested in marine sciences but I've also been very interested in biotechnology for many years so I just wanted to find something where I could combine both things. I found this research center in northern Mexico, they told me about it, I contacted my former supervisor and I was pretty lucky because he said yes straight away. I had a meeting with him in Mexico City and then I started my research over there. Over there I was working with cancer uh, lymphoma, we were trying to find a way to detect lymphoma in early stages and using shark antibodies. So yeah, I, I worked in that project for maybe six, seven months. I lived in North Mexico for about eight, nine months. Yep. Then I went back to Mexico City and graduated. And then I started working at a pharmaceutical company. And in that pharmaceutical company, I did a little bit of quality control and then I did a little bit of analytical development. My aim was or has always been basically to do some R&D research and development, 
But when I was there, I noticed that many of the people who got into the area of R&D had a postgraduate degree. So that's when I decided, I had always wanted to do a master's and a PhD, or a PhD basically. Yep. Uh, so that's when I decided that maybe it was time to continue with my studies to just get a higher qualification and probably potentially try to get into this area in the future. And that's how I came to Australia <laughs> to do my master's. So how did you decide to come to, <laughs> to Australia? Because I know that you did tell me earlier that you've always wanted to come to Australia. So how did you choose... Uh, Melbourne and Latrobe, for example. Yeah, <laughs> actually, many people always tell me, "What are you doing in Australia?" You got Canada and the USA. <laughs> yeah, I had always wanted to come to Australia for marine sciences as mm-hmm. well. So my main city or target was Queensland, close to tropical waters, Great Barrier Reef, all that. Mm-hmm. But then a little bit of a small disappointment when they told me that they didn't really do marine biotechnology up there. And most of the masters were coursework only, okay. and just a tiny little bit of research. So one day I was at this um, Australian University's fair, and I was walking around the stalls checking, and I ended up at the one from La Trobe. And I was very lucky because uh, one of the staff members of the masters of biotechnology was there. I started explaining what I was doing. I mentioned the shark antibodies. He mentioned there was a lab that work with shark antibodies here and I think that's when I started getting convinced that I really really wanted to come here. I checked the structure of the course, it was what I had in mind I guess and many people who had already lived in Australia, there were like more people than I imagined that had already lived in Australia, I recommended Melbourne because I'm from Mexico City so they basically told me don't go to a small city or might be very boring for you, but like strongly recommend yeah. you to go to a big city. So that's that's how I ended up here in Melbourne. Very different to what I imagined Australia was going to be. So what did you imagine Australia to be then? So what is the TV like in Mexico depicting Australia? Do we still ride kangaroos and no, all that? No, you don't ride kangaroos, you just ride waves. Waves, yep. I think it was basically like surf, sun, kangaroos, yes, yep. but good weather, beaches all day long. And currently this year our weather's been absolutely crap. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I think I'm colder in Australia than I was in Mexico, so... <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me this year because I've been freezing as well. Yeah, and I got used to um, diving with a lot of layers because yep. I always thought, now Australia, tropical waters everywhere. I'm going to be diving with nothing over there. No wetsuit. <laughs> nah, and weren't you looking like a $500 wetsuit yesterday? Yes, yeah. 7mm because I need... I always need thicker. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. So, what is the main difference between Mexico City and Melbourne? The main difference, I guess, is the amount of people. So, like, basically, Mexico City has the whole population of Australia contained within one city only. So, I guess the main difference is you don't see as many people as you would in Mexico City. So, traffic is not as bad. Public transport, it can get crowded, but it will never be in Mexico City's levels. Uh, that would be, I guess, the main difference. Not seeing as many people on the streets. Cause... So when you catch a train here, you actually are happy to see standing space because you're not used to that in Mexico? Yeah, most of the time. Yep. <laughs> in Mexico, you will be very lucky to be able to get into the oh, train, okay. basically. It's... Depending on the hour. But... Yeah. So you did Masters and then you obviously got to PhD. You still have the same drive to go and do PhD from Masters you did before you started your Masters? I have to be honest, I did have to think about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. When I finished my master's, or at least on the final stages of the master's, I, I was really, really tired. I think I 
drain myself out during the masters, at least at the end. And I seriously consider not continuing with a PhD and I discussed it with friends and I discussed it with my parents and many people told me this has basically been your dream for many years so just because you're very tired right now it doesn't mean that you won't be able or won't be willing to do it later on. So what I did, uh, because they offered me the possibility of applying for a scholarship that required me to wait for a few months, is basically waiting. So I just took a break. Uh, I went home to yep. see with my friends, my family, eat some original and authentic tacos, and, <laughs> and and then I came back. I guess it was it was really good, just forgetting about everything for a little bit and just recovering my energy and yep. yeah, recovering a little bit before following or continuing with the next stage. And your PhD so far, how's that traveling? It's been good. Yep. It hasn't been as I guess the thing that happened is that during the master, you don't really have the experience of how it's going to be. Yeah. So the first day that, I, that you stay pretty late in the lab, you can't believe that this is happening to you. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess now for the PhD, I was mentally prepared that there were going to be days when I... You can actually like plan. Or, yeah. You can plan if you're going to be like, okay, if I'm going to be late, I'll just have dinner this time. I'll plan my experiments around this time and you're not as surprised. Yeah, exactly. And I also promised to myself that I was not going to stop doing things that I liked uh, during my PhD. That's like, true. If I have some spare time, I just go running or I promise not to come on weekends as much as I can so that I can go diving and things like that. So I just promised to myself during the PhD, keep doing the things that you like yeah. and do what you did on the master's, which was basically just focus on my research and... Yeah, I That's think that true. was one of the things that made me feel so tired. During yeah, the you have to definitely have a delicate balance. Have something to at least have that you can do in your spare time during your PhD because you don't want to be bogged down and just research for exactly. the amount of time we spend doing a PhD. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So just the last section, I'll have to ask, I like to ask just a couple of quick questions to get some quick fly responses. Sure. Um, so the first question is, if you have a choice of presenting your work, do you prefer a poster presentation or an oral presentation? Oral. I like to talk. Fair enough. Um, what's your choice of beverage in the morning? Coffee or Red Bull? Uh, tea. Tea? <laughs> I think you already answered this earlier, but do you prefer late nights at uni or do you prefer doing weekends? Uh, late nights. Late nights. <laughs> no weekends. What's, what's currently your favourite TV show? Um, I was watching a series called Versailles. Uh, Versailles. Versailles. It's based on um, the Sun King in France. Okay. Season one is over here in Australia, so I'm just waiting for season two right now. What's your favorite thing about PhD life? PhD life. PhD life or in general or just in Australia? I think PhD life, my favorite thing would be everything that I'm learning, both personally and in scientific terms, and also all the people that you get to know while doing it. All right. Thanks for that, Gabby. Okay. I don't want to hold you any much longer. She is currently studying for a scuba diving test because <laughs> I have today. she has today in actually 45 minutes. So I'm not going to hold her much too much longer. Thank I'll let her go for that. Thanks for listening. All episodes can be found on the PhD Podcast Facebook page. You can subscribe via iTunes on Apple, listen on SoundCloud, or add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed. Have any thoughts? Feel free to leave a comment on the Facebook page or on iTunes or on SoundCloud as I hope to read them all. Once again, thank you for listening.